Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Mike Cation, voice of the USTA Pro Circuit. Does a great podcast with Noah Rubin called Behind the Racket. And you can find him at Mike C Tennis on all social medias known to man, including Twitch and YouTube, where he's doing uh, pregame shows before a lot of the challenger events. And uh, really one of the, the best and favorite members of tennis media for uh, not just myself, but I think so many tennis fans. Uh, We are going to get into Cam Norrie in a ton of depth and really awesome insights on on Cam Norrie, in my opinion, uh, out of this discussion. Uh, Taylor Fritz, Nicholas Basilishvili, the crowds at Indian Wells, why so many seeds lost, and uh, some of the issues or improvements that might be possible when it comes to the ATP Challenger Tour. First, uh, I do want to get in a little bit more depth um, solo here on the carnage and the fact that we did have a a Masters 1000 unlike any I can remember in recent times in the respect that there were no top 25 seeds in the semifinals. And you had a final in Nicholas Basilashvili and Cam Norrie that did feel more shocking and surprising than any final you can remember really since Philip Krajinovic and Jack Sock in Paris 2017. And I think there were a couple of things at play here. Yes, Mike and I uh, talk about this as well. And Mike proposes the court conditions. So I'll skip that part and we'll get to that in the interview. But the first thing is something I've talked about a lot. Weird stuff happens after the U.S. Open. Always has, always will. Motivation is all over the map. There are players, especially the top guys, who have played, generally speaking, despite less tournaments, potentially more matches. They are more financially comfortable. Uh, They may have different levels of motivation at this time of year. And some of them, such as Alexander Zverev, have been very, very open about hating how long this season is. The second part is injuries, and I think players have more than more than anything at this time of year, there are a lot of players who aren't healthy. And that can dictate a lot. Mostly the motivation. Things are weird after the U.S. Open. But then you go through the list. Daniil Medvedev. I got to bring up the court conditions with with Medvedev. This was as slow as a clay court, slower than some clay courts. And we've gone over why that is not good for Daniil Medvedev and his offensive output. It's hard for him. Gritty court, not good for him. Bad matchup in Dimitrov. Slices the backhand. Really fast. Elite speed. Talked about it in the post-match video. Bad matchup, bad conditions. Medvedev goes out. Was the way it happened shocking? Yes, it was. But you zoom out and you get it. Tsitsipas. I still think he came in with an illness. I don't think he was right. Uh, He was coughing uh, after his post-match interviews and just didn't sound good. And he looked a little weaker and he looked a little slower. All weak to me. Basilashvili, also not a great matchup. Tsitsipas' pace absorption, not great, not the best. He's not Medvedev. He's not Zverev. He's not Djokovic. He's not that kind of player. He's a little bit different. He can be susceptible to 
the the heavier hitters. And they've they've always played close, him and Basilashvili. Bad matchup, came in ill. Uh, Zverev, look, one in every 20 matches, you're going to have a Zverev double fault match. You're just going to have it. So Zverev um, has plays a really good match against Taylor Fritz, a really, really good match, and then loses his second serve and loses the match. It's just going to happen. One in every 20 matches is going to happen with him at the moment. That That's where we're at with him. And runs into a hot player in Taylor Fritz as well. But deep into the tournament, you got to expect that. So this was a Zverev double fault match. Okay. Al, um, Andre Rublev, I'm, I don't love him when the conditions are this low. Uh, I think that hurts him a lot. I think he needs to play in conditions where he can finish with his first serve plus one. Otherwise, he can get worn down. And he gets a guy in Tommy Paul, who I had as a dark horse, was the only unseated player to make the round of 16. So since my predictions were, were so horrific in every other respect, I'm going to take credit for that. 7-5 uh, in the third. Tommy Paul in the best, I, most ideal conditions possible in a tournament that is very close to his heart. And Paul plays a great match. Berrettini hasn't been that good since Wimbledon. Hasn't looked right to me. I think he's been too mistake-prone. I don't think he's playing as clean as he did prior to Wimbledon and at Wimbledon, and I just don't think he's been the same player. So Berrettini loses to Taylor Fritz, who was playing awesome tennis, top 20 level. And then lastly, Kasper Ruud. Ruud has a bit of an arm injury and just didn't have the weight of shot, didn't have the heaviness on the forehand, and then plays the good version of Diego Schwartzman. The good version of Diego Schwartzman has been pretty good in 2021. And then there's the version of Diego Schwartzman this year that doesn't look like a top 100 player. And I have no, I have no hypothesis. I have no idea why that is. Uh, the Diego Schwartzman season has confounded me. I don't, I can't get a read on him whatsoever. But, you know, I think Casper Ruud, I do chalk that up a little bit too. I, I think there was an injury there. So you go down the list... Are there surprising results in there? Yeah, there's some head scratchers. Was anything completely crazy given the time of the year and and all things considered? I, I don't think any in isolation are that crazy. The fact that it all happened, the fact that none of them got through, none of them were able to put the pieces together and make it to the final four. Yeah, that's surprising. It's definitely surprising. Um, but what I hate are the dystopian post-Big 3 era takes. The this is what we're going to get now that the Big 3 are gone and it stinks. I can't stand that because, first of all, we just had a fantastic U.S. Open. Fantastic. And I know Djokovic was a part of that, but outside of him, it was fantastic. So can we stop it with that? After the U.S. Open, strange things happen. The conditions were weird, which is the main thing that Mike and I talk about. And there were some injuries, some illnesses, some bad matchups. I mean, this kind of made sense. Um, and again, really happy for Cam Nori. And I'm going to get into that with Mike Cation. So without further ado, here it is. We're joined for the first time by Mike Cation. The longtime and preeminent voice of the USTA Pro Circuit, 
Among many other things, he is truly one of the most important voices in tennis media. Fans really? adore him for, <laughs> for good reason. Everybody except Sophie Amiak maybe is a big fan of his. And uh, I'm very excited to have you on Monday Match Analysis for the first time. Very kind words. Thanks, Gil. I appreciate it. So you were at Indian Wells. Yeah. Um, let, let's get into the champion on the men's side right off the bat, Cam Nori. And one of the, the unique things about talking to you about any of these guys is you were probably watching them before we were. Yeah. Um, we were doing Bank of the West Radio, which is the on-site radio in Indian Wells. And immediately afterwards, I, I will be perfectly blunt, I was in, in tears. I was tearing up because... Five years ago to the week, I watched Cam Norrie play Tommy Paul in Stockton or Fairfield, one of the two challengers. And then five years later, I'm watching them battle at a Master Series 1000, battling for a spot in the quarterfinals. And on top of it, you know, actually during the trip, one of those, you know, uh, I think it was Instagram memories or something along those lines popped up four years ago. So one year later, Cam had won back-to-back -back challengers and needed a ride to Fairfield because he was going to pull out because of injury and he didn't have a rental car. So it was me, Cam Nori, and his coach, Facundo Lugones. The three of us packed into a very tiny rental car of mine and we drove together. And so, yeah, I've, I've known Cam for five, six years. And what strikes me is that he hasn't changed as a human being. He is a very kind and humble young man. What I remember about that car ride was it, none, none of it was about him or his tennis or anything like that. He was, he was peppering me with questions for the entire hour and a half, he and Facundo. They were asking me about how I got involved in tennis, um, just some of my favorite memories of broadcasting. And it's the same thing. I, I, I interviewed him a couple times during this championship and he asked me how my daughter was, and he asked how things were going at Illinois, knowing that I used to be in Champaign, Illinois. And that's just who he is as a person. And so it's, it's one of those moments, Gil, where I, I'm very enthused to see how he has improved on the tennis court. And obviously what he's doing right now is phenomenal. But what is really striking for me is that he has not changed as a person, despite all of that success. He's still the same Cam Nori still has the same girlfriend. His parents are amazing people. He's just a good human being. And to see that, that, that incredible success happen to a person like that is truly rewarding. And yeah, I've gotten to see some of these guys grow up as people. And, and he's just a great person. And I'm, I, was, I felt very lucky to be able to watch him succeed at that level. Well, that's obviously great to hear. And uh, I knew Facundo for a little bit. He coached at uh, my academy probably before he began coaching camp. So way back, um, yeah. he probably remembers me as a player uh, that had limited potential. Um, and I, I hope it, it to... happens when we're when we're a little bit on the diminutive side, Gil. Yes, it does. It does. <laughs> um, OK, as a player, what did you see in Cam as a player when you were calling his matches on the challenger circuit? Um, I, I can say that it was more than anything, his phenomenal level of competition and intelligence. Um, the backhand that he has now was not what he had then. It was 
fine. It was functional. It was and that kind of blunt backhand, but it wasn't that full follow through. So what he's been able to do and, and how what I think has made him most potent um, is just the ability for that backhand now to be a weapon. It is really difficult to handle. And I apologize, I'm going to have a cat that just hops in here. There she is uh momentarily we want that that's i mean yeah, I, yeah that's that's what you came to the to to youtube for is to watch me play with my cats um but basically <laughs> what he's been able to do with that that backhand and make it so potent and so damaging and so hard to handle i think that's the biggest level of improvement on top of it yeah i mean he needed to get physically stronger um and i think that has been a very big thing and i i've told this story before um that that basically he had one tournament he actually won the title in binghamton new york where he had the yips with his toss he he would basically just have these he couldn't find his toss like it was it was the weirdest thing you had players who were screaming about it like asking for the supervisor because cam's just sitting there like <laughs> trying to throw up his toss and can't find where he's supposed to hit his serve and he's just like <laughs> And so it'd be four or five, six tosses at a time. I mean, it was literally 40 or 50%. It was crazy. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's the thing is he he just continued to work. And I I, I saw, um, you know, Matthew Willis, of course, on Twitter, and he, he made that point about how too many people and, and myself probably included just say, you know, this shows what hard work can do. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of like a false, narrative because obviously there is an extreme level of talent um i think it took cam a little bit more time to reach that talent i think he his level of intelligence is off the charts good yeah and so he and facundo and he also works with the folks in the lta he also works still very closely with devin bowen who's the assistant coach at tcu and they have all put together a plan knowing in three or four years what he could be um, and so I think it's it's maybe one of those situations still where you think about how to achieve a long term goal and can really set to that and, and really locked in on it. And that's something I think we kind of lose track on too many players maybe will go for quick success and, and trying to do too much too quickly. Whereas Cam was able to look at a big picture with a good group around him to get to this point where at this stage of his career, 2020 and then 2021, he is what everybody wanted him to be four or five years ago. What I'd say on the, the topic of hard work, what I've gathered is everyone on the tour is pretty much willing to hit for hours every day, to work on technique, to spend time on the court. But when it comes to diet, when it comes to fitness, there are levels to it. And one thing that, that stood out about Cam, um, you know, he, he went deep in San Diego the week before Indian Wells. Then he played three-setter, 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 three-setter. I went into the match against Diego Schwartzman wondering how fresh he would be. The reality is he, can, he, doesn't, he doesn't run out of steam. Uh, you know, he is as fit as, as anyone out there. And honestly, I don't think that his play style would work if he was not at that elite level of fitness. That's my read on things. Yeah, and it's interesting to say that because if you look at him, you wouldn't say that. Yeah. Um, he, he just looks like an average dude, um, quite frankly. There's not like defined muscle tone. 
I don't know if you saw this, but there was a really interesting article. Um, Facundo Lugones uh, was interviewed and basically they talked about Cam's heart. And I'm not talking about he's got a lot of heart and can get through these matches, but at Battle of the Brits last year, when they were doing those exhibitions, they had um, those mechanisms that kind of looks like a sports bra, but helps test heart capability and things. And I, I apologize, I don't know exactly what they're called, but you've seen Andy Murray wear them in training quite a bit. Yep. Um, and basically it it's normally, once you hit 180 to 200 beats per minute, if you do that for more than two minutes, most people will literally die. Their heart will stop. Um, and that includes a lot of top level athletes. Cam was able to go eight minutes above 180 beats per minute. So his, his heart muscle itself, literally, not figuratively, his heart muscle itself operates at a level that 99.999% of humans can't get to, that all of those other humans will literally die. Um, so he has that capability to remain calm and it allows his body to function when maybe most other people would not function. So yes, he is he is in good, very good shape. And he has this capability that most of us do not where he can still maintain that muscle movement and brain movement at a lower level, even though his heart is pumping like ridiculously high. So it's that was a fascinating insight from Facundo that yeah, Cam has a, a level of fitness that we just can't attain. Wow. So he, he, he has like a double big heart. Yes. He has a big heart in both, in both the figurative sense yes. and the literal. That's, that is, that's fascinating. Yes, um, it is. It reminds me kind of of like Michael Phelps's feet sort of, and you know, right. Michael Phelps also probably has a similar thing going on with his heart. If yeah, I no, I mean, that's it. Listen, I, we actually had Sophie Amiak, who you mentioned a commentator, we were actually having kind of a joking discussion, but she said, well, that's almost cheating. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, but that's, that's the thing. It's physically gifted. It's not enhanced. It, it just is. Um, so yeah, what an incredible blessing for him. Are we too obsessed with weapons as a tennis society? Do we look at weapons and power and, you know, Cam Norrie just won a, a Masters 1000 tournament. He's 10th in the race. And a lot of people at first glance, and look, weapons are important, don't get me wrong, but they might say Cam is not going to reach the top because the weapons aren't there. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately as well. I think weapons can be different things than maybe what we normally think of. I think we, you know, typically will say, you know, uh, Delpo's forehand, uh, Riley Opelka serve, you know, th those types of situations. Even down at the challenger level, I think of Dennis Kudla having that backhand, that backhand down the line is a huge weapon. Cam has weapons. Um, it's just not the, what you think of in a traditional sense. And and I, I'm using him, obviously, as the example to get to your bigger point, but um, his ability to use that backhand as he does such a devastating ball to get the second second ball on his forehand wing that he can either put away or force an error. It is not in the traditional sense what a weapon is, but it is incredibly potent. It might just cause a lot of forced errors that doesn't have that high winner count, but that is a weapon. So um, to answer your question specifically, I, I think 
I think maybe we could broaden the definition of what is a weapon. Totally this is not one. This is not one that I can say forehand weapon. It's com it's his his ability to hit a combination with starting with that backhand that is a ridiculous weapon. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think yes, I think there's possibilities of 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 that being the case. Now I know you were going to get to this eventually here, Gil, but this court and the way that the courts at Indian Wells were playing neutralized a lot of weapons. Yeah. Um, so his capability to put together combinations on repeat, which is his weapon, that was enhanced. As was the ability to hang tough in long rallies sure. and sure. figure out creative ways to, to force errors when the winners weren't really going to flow unless you were Nicholas Basilashvili, in yes. which case the winners might flow anyway. Along um, with a lot of unforced errors, but that's beside yes. the point. <laughs> well, okay, let's let's hit on him real quick. Um, I feel like Basilashvili is who he is. Yeah, I, I think you know the man is likely not going to change. He's 29 years old. Uh, his game is is rather intriguing in a lot of ways. There are allegations that have been formally filed in court that should trouble everyone. Um, but in terms of the power, it's it's insane to watch. It is. I just think it, he's always going to be the guy who might catch fire, slow conditions, ATP 500, could win it any given week, is still going to lose first round a lot. Like, I just don't think that's going anywhere. I, I completely agree with you. Uh, uh, I will say I interviewed him twice um, during the week, and he talked a lot about how he has been working with a mental coach and, and working on um, being a little bit more consistent with his play. Um, he also told me he didn't think at all about the conditions and how it affected how he plays, which to me was a very interesting, I, I couldn't actually fathom that to be perfectly <laughs> blunt with you, because I found myself as I'm watching him thinking the fact that the ball is checking up it gives him more time to load up and hit as big as he does. This is ideal for him. Um, I think it was a perfect week, a perfect situation where everything fell into place and he is going to have some of those weeks. Um, and nobody really, which match was it that I, I'm going to have to, I'm looking at my draw here. Um, yeah, the Sitsipas match yeah. was Stefanos, the game plan that they had was, just frankly not ideal there was no level of aggression from stefanos and i don't know if that right. was game plan related necessarily or execution related but stefanos was very defensive through that entire match and allowed vasilishvili to just continue to have time to load up there was no adjustments that stefanos made to move forward or work angles a little bit better he has so many capabilities uh, off of both wings Sitsipas does and just didn't ever use it. So that was the one where I found myself thinking Sitsipas should win this nine times out of 10 with his weapons, his capabilities. And he didn't for whatever reason, whether it be game plan, whether it be execution, it was not there. He was on his back heel the entire time. Yeah, uh, that, that was my my takeaway from the match. Also, I wanted to give Vasilishvili credit for pulling off the upset. But my main thing after that match was, wow, that was not a match that Stefano should have lost. No. I think sometimes maybe the power 
could have a bit of an intimidation factor. And, you know, from a court position perspective, Tsitsipas was not where he needed to be in order to play his offensive tennis. And I think that's what ended up happening there. Yeah. And then, I mean, it, it was, it was interesting to know because Taylor Fritz actually then in the next round in the semifinals, then tried to do it a little bit more effectively. He was returning from, uh, from the, the baseline, at least making that attempt, right. To get Basilashvili out of his comfort zone, which I appreciated, but you know, Basilashvili just executed the big moments a little bit better. Taylor Fritz had more opportunities in that semifinal, uh, I think seven break chances and wasn't able to convert in the single one. So, you know, then you saw it in the very next round. Fritz had the looks, even though he was getting bullied a, a little bit, pushed around by the, the incredible power of Basilashvili, but at least had the opportunities, just wasn't able to execute. Tsitsipas, one of the many players who were surprised uh, on the top at the top of the men's game includes Medvedev and Zverev who not only lost but lost after holding big leads uh, people had expectations for Kasper Ruud in this tournament um, is there any explanation large scale for the carnage we saw or do you would we have to go case by case by case by case um, or, or was there something going on here I think you have to look at the court speed. I mean, listen, the the Medvedev situation was, I mean, a set and two breaks for number two player in the world. I I don't I don't know what the heck happened there. I really don't. And I watched the damn thing, and I still have no idea what was going on there. I, I think you have to look at the court speed. So many times, even on on slower courts, even on clay, the ability to get a few free and easy points. I mean, this was playing slower than some a lot of clay courts. Um, I, I, I just think you had to work a little bit more than you've had to in, in other events, other tournaments. And it just, it was on the women's side as well, right? I mean, it just, you had to have the easy, raw power of Vasilishvili or the incredible level of consistency of Cam Norrie is a great example, right? Like as Arenka on the women's side, her ability to outlast opponents got her through to the final and top of it, her intelligence, right, of consistently adjusting. Um, you, so it basically came down to two things for me, just that, that willingness to stay in for three hours or the ability to just go full out. So in, in terms of just the carnage, yeah, it was, it was a tournament unlike anything I've ever seen. The tennis wasn't always great quality, to be blunt. Um, so I think as a result, you just saw a lot of things that should have come easy that just didn't because it was flipping hard. It was really hard. I, I, I can subscribe to that. Um, no doubt about that. I think there are some players who still should have thrived. Um, yes. you know, everyone's carrying an injury at this time of year. There are, there are things happening. Uh, motivation, I think, is in different places for players after the U.S. Right. Open. Many, many things there. Um, Unfortunately, the crowds were not what you'd expect out of a normal Indian Wells. It was obviously in an unconventional spot in the calendar in October. You were on the grounds. I'm sure this was a topic of discussion. Yeah. What was the read on this? Yeah, I, I, I mean, listen, you can definitely say that. And I understand why um, crowds probably a half on the on the once we got to the finals, we can probably half of what it would normally be. Um I think you can look at a glass half empty or, or half, you know, half full, right? For me, I think I'm willing to 
give it the benefit of the doubt. It's in October, schools are in session, you don't have the spring break situation. Indian Wells is obviously a destination tournament for so many people from around the world. That is wiped out. No kids under the age of 12. So that rules out a lot of families. Um, and But I think the travel one is just the big part of it. Um, nobody's going to be flying from, from Europe to come to Indian Wells in October when it's just, it's so difficult right now. Um, but yeah, it was a topic of conversation. I think most of us were able to appreciate what it was, which is a, a, a great opportunity to again, come to a place, especially considering it, it was the tournament where everything got canceled and everything stopped. So to have this event again was a big positive. I think everybody who was there felt safe, uh, was happy. Um, it was actually like a really fun, good atmosphere. Did it maybe have bad optics in terms of the crowd not being perfect? Sure. But it was a lot of fun if you were on the grounds. But I just think it's, I think it's asking way too much to believe that it should have been three quarters attendance or full attendance. It just wasn't going to happen. I think if you appreciated it as it was, I think it was a great atmosphere. The fans that were there had a very good time. The ability to roam the grounds a little bit more free because it wasn't packed. It was a lot of fun to be there is what I can tell you. And yeah, if you yep. if you wanted three quarters audience, you weren't going to get it. It just wasn't going to happen. So I, I think it was perfect for what it was at this stage. Okay, that's insightful. And, you know, a lot of this is about routine, I think. And we've yes. even seen this in television ratings when all of these whether it be the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs, when these things are moved, they rate lower on television even because people are not, uh, the calendar matters to people. It's it's yes. part of a routine. Um, so, you know, looking forward to, to getting it hopefully in the normal calendar spot. I'm sure that's the plan next year. I think that, um, you know, we've, got, we've already got the dates. I read the commercial several times, March 7th through the 20th, 2022. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think you'll, you know, again, hopefully we get to a point where more specifically people can travel a little bit more freely throughout the states, more from Europe, just that capability to come out to California in March is phenomenal. Um, and I think it's a, a, a routine for a lot of people from around the country to be able to come out there at that time of the year, especially spring break. Hopefully kids will be able to come on site again under the age of 12. I think that's the hope. If, if we were to have this kind of crowd again in March, I think maybe you'd have a bigger discussion point. Um, but I, I, I tend to think, you know, again, all things being as they are looking right now with COVID, I think it'll be a completely different story in March. Yeah, I agree. Um, American tennis, Taylor Fritz, semifinalists. I feel like there's a good competitive mojo happening right now. There's a For lot sure. of Americans that are basically iron sharpening iron, whether it be the, the youngest generation of Brooksby, Korda, Nakashima, or your Taylor Fritz's and Riley Opelka's who, you know, they, they, they would never say this, but I think there's a sense of trying to fend them off and stay the alphas. Um, are we going to see a, a Taylor Fritz revenge tour a little bit? Because he, he was the guy for a, a fair bit of time and it wasn't Taylor's going to win majors, but it was, you know, Taylor's going to be the top gun. Mm -hmm. 
And we, well, look, anyone who was saying that after Memphis and way back when, I mean, it was it was definitely premature, right? I, I'm thinking about when he was 17 and 18 years of age. Right. I, I think that that was a realistic discussion that Taylor Fritz is going to win majors. I think that is okay. absolutely real. Where do you see the trajectory of him now after his career best result? What he said to me in one of our interviews that we did on site was actually really telling, Gil. He said to me, bringing on Paul Anacone, working with David Ninkin, one thing they've started to do is just simplify. Make things simple on the court. He says he overthinks, which is absolutely accurate. He is one of those guys who has 30 different things going on in his head. And he said with Matteo Berrettini, it was that after that match that he won uh, four and three. And he said, I know what the game plan is supposed to be against Matteo Berrettini. In years past, what I would do was try to overthink that and then go to the opposite plan so that he's thinking about that. And then I'm thinking about this. And he said, no, I just wanted to expose the backhand as much as possible. So one hit ball to the forehand and then just expose the backhand. Very simple. And I executed it. And frankly, I think that's a, a massive step for him. I don't know. I don't know if he's ever going to be the Grand Slam champion. Um, I, 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 think, I think working with Paul Anacone over the last, whatever it's been, eight, nine months, I do think that they're getting to that point where they're getting and honing in on what he's capable of and how to effectively execute a game plan. I think he's top 10 capable. I'll put it to you that yep. way. And then a grand slam, maybe, but, uh, you know, again, until Novak goes away, I don't, <laughs> maybe, I mean, there are, you know, two or three people on the men's side right now that I could say, okay, yeah, I could, I could see, I could see Medvedev, obviously I could see Zverev. I think that's outside of that. I don't know. Anybody's able to beat Novak right now. For sure. Um, but I think he's, I think, I think to your broader point about American tennis on the men's side, the depth is incredible. Well, I, I don't know what it is today because uh, the rankings just came out yesterday. And frankly, I either traveled or slept and that's all I've done since I left Indian Wells. But I know it was 13 Americans inside the top 100 when we were in Indian Wells. I mean, that's incredible depth. There's a lot of them. And yes, I think, I think frankly, even more than your idea of kind of pushing each other, the fact that they're together at these events now, and it's not just, you know, one American in Moscow and one American in Antwerp, now they're starting to go together and they're having that little comfort zone where they're able to travel together a little bit and push each other a little bit. That's going to make a big difference. Again, I don't know if any of these guys are, none of them say immediately, yes, 100% Grand Slam winner. But a lot of them have that top 20 capability, and then maybe something happens from there that's really special. Yep. I think with Taylor, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of everything he does within his control. I do worry that he's capped at a certain point athletically. You know, he just does not, I don't know that he'll ever get to the point of moving well enough to to really be in the elite elite tier one um that well, he that's needs to be on a slower surface Gil. i think that's yeah. you're exactly right i mean the again indian wells where he had just that millisecond more time right i mean look mm -hmm. what happened i think that was some of the best movement he had 
there are still also some things where he can be more efficient with, with his movement. And I think that's a big key as well. So I, yeah, I, I think you're right. He's pro he's not going to win Wimbledon. I don't think that there's ever a chance of that or a faster hard court. I think that's going to be a real challenge for him. But I think there's, I think he can still get incrementally better. Mm -hmm. And some of the slower courts might work well for him in that regard. I'm going to end on this. Yeah. It's probably a question that could potentially set you off on, on a 30 minute um, oh essay soliloquy. Listen, I am not Alex Gruskin. Okay. That's a great point. <laughs> you know, you're going to keep this nice and, and concise. I bet if you're a commissioner of the challenger tour, mm. um, you are in charge of those tournaments, that product looking to maximize the fan experience, improve conditions for the players yeah, this is economics. Going to be I, I know. Uh, well, is, are there any, what is pressing to you? If you got to be in charge, what were some things that you would try to implement on the challenger level? Okay. Um, number one, we need more. Number one, we need more. Um, the more opportunity, the better. Um, that is a, that is a challenging, challenging thing. Number two, we need to think long and hard about how we're labeling the Challenger Tour. And maybe we should stop using the Challenger Tour. Maybe we should re-identify how we look at that so that people who are more of a casual fan don't think, oh, this person is a Challenger player. Um, because that does not help in the least. Um, number three, we do need to work a little bit more on the top-down financing. Um, you saw how big of a deal it was at the U.S. Open where we started talk talking about how much more money it was for qualifying. That's a big deal just to have, again, incrementally increased finances. We have not changed the finances at the challenger level in 15 years. Something needs to give there. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like the way it's been marketed. Um, again, I, I feel like people believe, believe it's a completely different tour when in two weeks in Charlottesville, we're going to have, I think, five top 100 players, five, five main draw Grand Slam players like, like that are going to be there, and yet we're going to label it as something a lower level. I think that is really, really harmful. I mean, those are the... Those is, are the is, there enough, is there enough creativity there? It doesn't seem like there are a lot of things in terms of connecting to audiences, connecting to fans, doing things with content that are are interesting and, and maybe, you know, just creativity and, and trying things and effort. I mean, I look at uh, I look at just some things that certain leagues are doing, and I just think that there's a little bit more thought going into growth. That is I, I don't really see that. That is my exact point with the marketing. Okay. There is there is not enough uh, there are not enough resources given at at the ATP or at the WTA for that matter in terms of how we market them. Yep. It is it is again you've got Josh Mycellus is a dear friend of mine who runs the ATP Challenger Tour Twitter and Instagram and he does it almost entirely by himself. Meanwhile, he's got five or six tournaments to, to look at on a given week. And how is any one or even two people 
how are they going to put together a successful marketing campaign to make it seem like this is a really attractive product? You just can't do it um, with with that much going on in so many different locations. You can't get to. It'd be one thing if he had somebody on the ground in every single tournament and could do all sorts of great content. So yes, I, I, it, that is a that is a top down type of a situation. We can yep. talk a lot about the money side of of players, but you're absolutely dead on. It is really hard to sell a challenger when, when again, you have one or two people trying to handle 200 tournaments a year, the, the effective marketing of that. And it's Josh is great. My friend Jacob also does a little bit with Josh. And there's some other great people at the ATP. But yes, they need three or four more people realistically to make that a very successful marketing social media campaign. Um, and that's just one thing. I mean, that's just one component of it because ultimately like on the ground, I, I worked in PR, you, damn it, you are right. I did get half an hour and get a little bit passionate about this. I worked in PR for the Champagne Challenger for 10 years. Um, at the University of Illinois at the time, we had a great product, especially when Craig Tiley was there and we're coming off a national championship. We had Amir Delic and Rajiv Ram. Uh, Amir got to 60 in the world. Rajiv, obviously, what he's done now is incredible. Um, and then a couple of years after that, we had Kevin Anderson as well. I mean, we had top, top level players. It was so difficult to sell that tournament to champagne media. Like, again, small market media, because, again, you're competing here in the States. Often you're competing with football. You're competing with basketball, you you know, so you've got, you're trying to shoehorn in something in, in a spot in like Charlottesville and the same, same thing in a couple of weeks, they're competing with the start of college basketball, the end of college football. It's hard. It's yep. really, really hard. And we've got a very dedicated tennis audience, as I know you do um, with your 8 trillion subscribers on YouTube, because <laughs> God bless you. You're the one guy doing it here on YouTube, but we have a very dedicated audience in some locations, but how we get the the casual audience to come to some of these challengers, it's really hard. It's really challenging. And I know there are a lot of people who care passionately about doing it. There's not the greatest communication top down to make sure everything works, but there are a lot of people who care desperately and want to make it successful. I still don't have an, a great answer for how we connect everybody to make the product perfect. Yeah. Well said, Mike Cation, USTA Pro Circuit, Behind the Racket Podcast, Tennis Channel Podcast Network, Spotify, iTunes, all of that. Um, Twitch, some some sort of Twitch, but Mike, I'm not up on this. I, I'm not, I don't know what, what's going on there. Listen, when when the challengers start again, so November 1st, we'll be in Charlottesville. We're going to start doing our pregame shows again. It's on yeah. Twitch, twitch.tv slash Mike C Tennis. It's also on my YouTube channel, which is also Mike C Tennis. And basically we do half an hour live beforehand. Any questions, give you a preview of the day. Um, and then obviously go to wherever you watch your challengers uh, on the USTA Pro Circuit homepage or on livestream.com. There you go. All right. You're the best. Hope to see you soon. Cheers, buddy.